ZipRecruiter is a proud sponsor of Without Warning Podcast. Use code word WOW and search for jobs anytime, anywhere. The Lauren Agee case was hastily closed by authorities, but many questions remain. Come behind the curtain with private investigator Sheila Waisaki as she uncovers the truth about what happened to Lauren. This is Without Warning. Warning. The following episode contains details about sexual violence and elements that are graphic in nature. On the last episode, you heard from Judge Jonathan Young of DeKalb County go over Sherry Smith's case against Hannah Palmer. I wanted you to hear directly from the judge, in his own words, no filter, what he said and how he came to the conclusion he did to throw out Sherry's case. I also wanted to make sure that prior to listening to the judge, you knew that the appellate court overturned every single ruling that Judge Jonathan Young made. While you're listening and hearing the words that he's saying, know that it doesn't stand. In this episode, we're going to pick up where we left off with the judge starting to talk about my affidavit. And buddy, it is amazing. I don't think he can contain his contempt for me. This is a very, very important case for Tennessee. There's going to be a lot of precedent set in this case. Just watch. We have a bite, Mark. And I will be honest, at that point, I didn't remember reading all this, a bite, Mark, so I went back and and found it. Paragraph 9 of Ms. Wasaki's statement A, she says, there was no water found in Lauren's lungs. Again, that's a statement of fact. I don't know truly if she could qualify it, but she can rely on it because that was put forth. Accordingly, she could not have drowned. Well, I don't know whether she could have drowned or not. Again, that's a medical opinion, and she's not qualified to do that. But paragraph B is where we get to the bite mark. B, little I of one, a bite mark is present on Lauren's upper chest. Now, I went back and read the medical examiner's report, and he didn't say it was a bite mark. I went back and read the medical examiner's report of the plaintiff, Dr. Buzetsky. She didn't find it was a bite mark. I went back and looked at Mr. Liker's testimony with his 40 years of experience. He didn't find it was a bite mark. However, Ms. Wasaki, who has absolutely, well, has very limited medical knowledge, I will say that in reading her CV, the, the defendant put forth she has absolutely no medical knowledge, but to be fair to Ms. Wasaki, if you review her autopsy, or her CV, it does say that she once reviewed an autopsy, and she once met with a pathologist. Uh, however, the court draws the same conclusion as the defendant that this limited knowledge does not make her a medical expert, as stated before, and therefore strikes the non-fact parts of paragraph nine in that. In paragraph 9C, she talks about the experiment that she did with Mr. Melanson. The problem is 
and reading her affidavit and Mr. Mellinson affidavit, that neither of us listed any scientific, technical, or otherwise specialized knowledge in either their, in anything about that. They did not say whether or not the, how they got there. They did not say whether or not they had any training on that. Ms. Wasaki's affidavit is, is unclear. Mr. Mellison simply says he went to the academy. I'm not familiar with the academy, but I'm sure they probably give a cursory view of accident reconstruction, but it's probably more into car wrecks than it is to bodies floating in, a, in the river. There is no reference in anything about the relevant scientific methods, processes, or data used to review that. They don't have any qualifications, and even if they were qualified in that, it's obvious that they performed this test subject to the litigation, which would violate the fifth prong of the McDaniel test. However, it appears to the court this is no more than pseudoscience, and therefore Mr. Mellison or Ms. Wasaki cannot be capable of performing these experiments or qualified as experts capable of performing these experiments due to their lack of any scientific, technical, or otherwise specialized knowledge. So therefore, that part of nine must be stricken as well. Paragraph 10 is basically the same conclusory statement that the court struck in Mr. Weicker's Weichner testimony. She's put forth no competent proof as to the cause of Ms. Agee's death. There's no proof that it was caused by anything that the defendant did which is, again, this question that I led off with. This statement violates 701, 702, and 703. Same statement, the same applies for paragraphs 11 and 12 of that. Again, Ms. Wasaki may be the greatest private investigator ever, but that does not qualify her to give accident reconstruction or medical opinions that she is trying to do. So therefore, the court strikes paragraphs 10, 11, in the second sentence of paragraph 12. Same is true for paragraph 13. In fact, paragraph 13C of Ms. Wasaki's affidavit seems to be the pinnacle of her complete and other exaggeration of her qualifications. Court will read, there is a pattern on her chest that is consistent with her body weight being placed on a U-shaped structure post-mortem. I am aware that boats and canoes often have U-shaped structures. Although I cannot determine the source of the pattern, its presence is consistent with Lawrence being moved after her death. So in that one statement, Ms. Wasaki has decided that she is, one, a pathologist, two, an accident reconstructionist, and apparently a psychic as well, because that would make that she, the body has been moved. There is nothing in this record that shows that she's qualified to make any of those, and therefore the court strikes all of Ms. Wasaki's paragraph 13. Paragraph 14 is again the case that I talked about, or the paragraph that I talked about with Mr. Wasaki. It's highly suspicious to this court that basically Ms. Wasaki and Mr. Liker would look at the same evidence and conclude exactly the same conclusion. Mr. Weicker's coming at this from law enforcement experience. Mr. Wasaki's coming at this from different experiences. Again, there's no rationale as to how they come to the 
zero percentage on that, and therefore stricken for the same reasons the court struck Mr. Wasaki's case. As stated above, Section 3 of Ms. Wasaki's affidavit, insufficiency of police investigation is stricken. She has absolutely no law enforcement experience to derive that. That's paragraph 17 through 21. However, the court does allow that to come in from Mr. Liker, so I guess it's a moot point. Paragraph 21 basically is a hybrid. She talks about the police, and then she talks about the medical examiner. Again, she has no proof that either police officer or a medical examiner, and the court strikes 21 for that. 22 and 23, 22, 23, and 24. The medical examiner admitted key findings. Again, this is only her opinion. This is not the report of the medical examiner hired by the plaintiff. The medical report of the plaintiff did say that the injuries to the neck of Miss Agee were taken, but he just did not dictate to that. The bite mark on Lauren's chest, nobody talked about that. An imprint on Lauren's left knee and the U-shaped marks on her body. Again, no one had problems with that except Mr. Miss Wasaki, who is a private investigator. Therefore, the court strikes 22 through 24. Paragraph 25, my investigation revealed a continuing conspiracy. I think that's just a statement of a conclusory statement, not based on anything. She gets into what her statements are in 26 through 41. The crux of these paragraphs is she went down to talk to Miss Palmer. Miss Palmer actually did talk to her. There's an attached transcript of what was said, and all of that is, is completely fine with the court. The problem is, is Miss Wasaki's opinion that Miss Palmer was lying uh, during this testimony. Again, now, Ms. Wasaki has taken on the role of a polygraph test. Ms. Wasaki cannot determine whether or not someone's truthful or not. She can state what somebody said. It's up to the jury to determine whether or not that was truthful or not. Uh, the court does notice that the courts have disallowed polygraph tests since the Fry case back in 1923. She's not a behavioral expert. She's produced no scientific methods or processes or data to reach these conclusions, in fact, that the truthfulness of these statements in these paragraphs must be stricken. Uh, what was said, completely fine. Uh, as I stated earlier, the statement that the one gentleman made, that's completely fine. Paragraph 44 is the conclusion that it was a homicide. Again, I don't think she has the ability to say that when the old medical examiner has said it could be accidental. Next, we have the affidavit of, of Dan Hodges. The court does find that this affidavit where he interviewed the gentleman that said he saw Mr. Lilly swimming that night is complete hearsay. Does strike that part. However, the plaintiffs have rectified that by allowing, the court is allowing the uh, affidavit of Mr. Brown to come in, which basically says the same thing. Again, the affidavit of Mr. Brown does violate the rule put down of the February 24th order that there's no way Ms. Wasaki relied on that in her statement because according to the date on the statement of Mr. Brown, it did not exist until sometime on March 22nd. I will move on to the next the final determination 
on the summary judgment motion. To do so, the most court must examine what has not been stricken from the affidavits, if taken as true, and what relevant proof could go forth to the jury. It appears to this court that Lauren Agee died on or about July 26th on Center Hill Lake in DeKalb County, Tennessee. Further, it appears that Miss Agee consumed alcohol the night before her death. That Miss Agee was last seen alive in the early morning hours of July 26, 2015. That Miss Palmer did not report that Miss Agee was missing. That Miss Agee's purse, shoes, and mobile phone were still located next to her hammock the next morning. Within minutes of the discovery of Miss Agee's body by the fishermen, Chris Stout and Aaron Lilly arrived at the location. Miss Agee's body was found at the water's edge. Miss Agee's sleeping bag and clothing remained missing. The DeKalb County Sheriff's Department investigated the death. All individuals were allowed to speak to one another before being questioned by the police. Investigators did not secure the scene, did not conduct a rape kit, and took few pictures. Dr. Thomas Deering was the medical examiner in this case. That both the Sheriff's Department and the medical examiner in this case ruled the death accidental by falling from a cliff, landing on rocks, and rolling into the lake. The medical exam listed possible drowning as a contributing factor of the death, despite the fact that there was no fluid found in Miss Agee's lungs. Within weeks of Miss Agee's death, Miss Palmer moved to Florida. Mr. Liker and others stated that the DeKalb County Sheriff's Department should have performed more testing or done a better job investigating this matter. A witness purports to see Mr. Lilly swimming in the lake the night of the accident. Upon interviewing Ms. Palmer, Mr. Lilly states, keep your story straight and all of you have to stop. Your freaking stories don't match. Dr. Grzeski stated that in her opinion, the injuries to Ms. Agee were consistent with Dr. Deering's findings. In fact, her conclusion stated that to find differently would require further investigation outside of the medical exam and is needed to determine the manner of death as other than accident. However, Dr. Bozeski did state that the bruising around the neck could have been caused by strangulation. Finally, Ms. Palmer is asserting her Fifth Amendment privilege on the questions about what happened the night Ms. Agee died. StoryWorth has come on board as a sponsor of Without Warning. StoryWorth is already a part of our household since my youngest gave me the gift of StoryWorth. What is StoryWorth? StoryWorth makes it easy and fun for you and your loved ones to share their stories with weekly emailed story prompts, questions you've never thought to ask. At the end of the year, they'll get their stories bound in a beautiful hardcover book. I can't tell you how much I've enjoyed having the prompts. The prompts come in an email and you answer them and they make it so easy. You can call it in or you can email it. This is truly one of those gifts from the heart. I got it for Mother's Day and I hope that someone in your family gives it to you for Mother's Day. StoryWorth is offering $20 off for Without Warning podcast listeners. Visit StoryWorth.com backwards slash wow when you subscribe. Visit StoryWorth.com backwards slash wow when you subscribe. I travel a lot. 
I am in and out of airports, in and out of the hot weather. And when I get home, the last thing I want to do is cook. And I'm not that great of a cook anyway. So I love to have an option when I walk through the door. I just want to eat something nutritional. That's what I love about Daily Harvest. Daily Harvest delivers thoroughly sourced, chef-created food that is built on fruits and vegetables and can be prepared in less than five minutes. When I got home from presenting PI Experience, I walked in the door with my luggage, opened the freezer, pulled out mint and cacao smoothie, added almond milk, put it in the blender. Five minutes, I was drinking a delicious smoothie. Go to dailyharvest.com and enter promo code WOW to get three free cups to your first box. That's promo code WOW for three free Daily Harvest cups at dailyharvest.com, dailyharvest.com. Of course, my memories of the summer are all about being at the pool. We all know that scent is closely linked to memory, and I feel like when it comes to some of my favorite summer memories, that's definitely the case. To this day, whenever I smell suntan lotion, I instantly go back to when my kids were little and we went to the Y. Create some special memories this summer with the perfect fragrance from Fleur, P-H-L-U-R. I now travel with Fleur. I bring it to the hotels and spray my pillows and myself. It makes me feel like home when I'm not there. What I like the most about Fleur is that it's transparent and discloses every ingredient. Make new scent memories with Fleur. Go to Fleur.com today and use promo code WOW and get 20% off your first custom Fleur sample set. Pick three cents to try and get credit towards a full-size bottle of your favorite. That's promo code WOW at Fleur.com to get your first three Fleur fragrance samples at 20% off. Third Love is a proud sponsor of Without Warning. Third Love makes it convenient to be fitted, You can go online and take a quiz, get the perfect fit. Third Love has 78 bra sizes with bands ranging from 30 inches to 48 inches and cups AA to I, one of the largest in the industry. I also want to mention that their bras are extremely comfortable. I love the fabric. Third Love bras cost the same no matter the size. Same comfort, same perfect fit, same fabric, same style, same price, no matter what the size. Third Love knows there's a perfect bra for everyone. So right now they are offering my listeners 15% off your first order. Go to thirdlove.com slash warning now to find your perfect fitting bra and get 15% off your first purchase. That's thirdlove.com slash warning for 15% off today. The court must now determine if Ms. Palmer's assertion of her Fifth Amendment privileges against self-incrimination would trigger a negative inference from being drawn. Since this is a civil case, Tennessee law allows the jury to make a negative inference against Ms. Palmer for any questions in which she chooses to assert her privilege. The purpose of the negative inference is to help the plaintiff overcome a distinct advantage that the defendants asserting 
her rights put the plaintiff in from trying to prove her case. The questions she asserts the privilege on are the ones dealing with what happened, who was present, and or the facts or circumstances surrounding the death of Miss Agee. Tennessee law allows the invocation of the privilege in a civil matter only under those circumstances in which the person invoking the privilege reasonably believes that her disclosures could be used in a criminal prosecution or could lead to other evidence that could be used in a manner whether the disclosures would not be directly incriminating but could provide an indirect link to incriminating evidence. In the present case, there is no statute of limitations for homicide in Tennessee. And obviously, anything incriminating that Ms. Palmer might say could still be used against her. Therefore, the court does find that Ms. Palmer's invocation of her Fifth Amendment privilege would be proper under Tennessee law. In fact, it has been alluded to by the defense counsel that the plaintiff has threatened federal charges should they be able to find any evidence linking the defendants to the death of Ms. Agee. Now, the court is aware that this puts the plaintiff at a distinct disadvantage in this proceeding. However, a negative inference is not a blanket rule as our Supreme Court ruled in the Akers decision in 2012. In that decision, the court created a rule that the jury may only draw a negative inference from the party's invocation of a Fifth Amendment privilege in a civil case where there is independent evidence of the fact to which the party refuses to answer by invoking her Fifth Amendment privilege. It goes on to say, in the instances where there is no corroborating evidence to support the fact under the inquiry, no negative inference is permitted. So the question now becomes, is there any corroborating evidence to support the accusations that Hannah Palmer intentionally, recklessly, or negligently caused harm to Laura Agee, either directly or proximately? The court finds that the plaintiff has failed to produce any evidence that Hannah Palmer either intentionally, recklessly, or negligently caused any harm to Laura Agee, either directly or proximately. There is, at best, perhaps some smoke hanging around Mr. Lilly due to his actions and statements, but nothing in regards to Ms. Palmer. Further, with the expert testimony re remaining, the only thing that the plaintiff has proven is that the police possibly could have done more in their investigation. However, no experts has testified to what further investigation would have discovered or any evidence linking anyone to this alleged killing. Also, the plaintiff has proven that the medical examiner could have discussed the injuries to Ms. Agee's neck in greater detail. Also, that it would be possible that Ms. Agee died in a manner other than falling off the bluff. However, as with the police, Dr. Guzetsky stated that while it is possible that the injuries could have been caused by strangulation, she could not state that to a reasonable degree of medical certainty. However, the court finds that the plaintiff has not produced any shred of evidence that anyone intentionally harmed Ms. Agee. In the alternative, the plaintiff's experts were completely, were competently able to testify in the alternative. Even if the plaintiff's experts were competent to testify to everything in their affidavits, they might be able to prove that Ms. Agee died under suspicious circumstances. Even then, the plaintiff fails to prove any evidence that purports to Ms. Palmer doing anything to cause harm to Ms. Agee, which is the crux of their case. The plaintiff's experts do their best to throw blame at the medical examiner, at the sheriff's department, but put forth no evidence tying Ms. Palmer to any alleged wrongdoing. At best, if every statement was taken as true, they might be able to obtain a negative inference towards some of the remaining defendants, 
but it's the opinion of this court that it would still not be enough to get a negative inference ruling as to Ms. Palmer. With that being said, the court is extremely disappointed with the quality of testimony in the affidavits provided by the plaintiff in this matter. The plaintiff only produced one expert who could give a medical opinion pursuant to Rule 702 and 703. However, the testimony of Dr. Gazetsky backed up the testimony of the medical examiner and stated that the injuries to Ms. Agee were consistent with a fall from a great distance. Now, she did state that some of the injuries, especially around the throat, could be caused by strangulation, but she could not give a definite opinion on the cause of death or any other cause other than accidental until further investigation and outside of the medical examination is needed to determine the manner of death other than accident. However, the remaining witnesses had no scientific, technical, or otherwise specialized knowledge in the medical field, continued to make statements and accusations that they were utterly unqualified to make. With the exception of Dr. Gazetsky, their opinions were not based on any relevant scientific methods, processes, and data, and seemed to be just pulled out of the thin air. At best, they did not know what they were talking about, and at worst, they were simply trying to sell their services. Perhaps if the other witnesses had taken their findings to Dr. Gazetsky, she would be able to offer a different opinion than what she took. But again, that's not the case. While the remaining experts' accusations may make for an exciting news broadcast or conspiracy theory, they have no place in a court of law. The court hopes that they had some good faith basis to believe they could draw these conclusions and were not created to take advantage of the thoughts and beliefs of a grieving mother. The court has great sympathy for Ms. Smith and cannot imagine the pain and grief she must feel every day over the death of her daughter. I cannot imagine the great monetary cost she has spent hiring these experts who in the end said a lot of nothing to forward her case. However, sympathy and the law do not mix. The plaintiff in this very sympathetic case has exactly the same hurdles under the law as any other plaintiff. Therefore, the court finds that Ms. Palmer has successfully demonstrated that the non-moving party's evidence at the summary judgment stage is insufficient to establish that she, Hannah Palmer, intentionally, recklessly, or negligently caused harm to Ms. Agee, either directly or proximately, and further, that she did nothing to prove any of the allegations complained in the plaintiff's <clears throat> complaint it is the opinion of this court that despite the allegations the plaintiff brought forth in her complaint, upon a review of the record, the motions, memorandum, and affidavits filed, the arguments of the lawyers, there are no facts at the summary judgment stage showing there is a genuine issue of fact for the trial. The plaintiff has put forth, at best, some metaphysical doubt as the material facts that the defendant caused harm to Miss Agee. Under the Rye decision, that is simply not enough. At best, the plaintiff has proven Enough evidence that Ms. Agee was, Mr. Lilly, was acting suspicious, but this motion is not dealing with him. This court finds that there is no existence of facts in this record which could lead a rational trier of fact to find in favor of the moving party. Therefore, the, grant, the court grants the defendant's motion for summary judgment in paragraphs three through seven of the defendant's motion since the plaintiff does not have enough evidence to proceed on those allegations, the court grants paragraphs eight and nine of the plaintiff's motions as well, as without injury, there can be no damage. The court does not grant the request for attorney fees in this matter. The court does find that the mother had reason to suspect foul play in these actions of the defendants, 
but her suspicions could not be made probable by the experts she chose to reign. However, it does excess court costs to the plaintiff for which judgment so issue. Who will draw the order? All right. Court's adjourned. On the next episode, Tom Shaw, an attorney out of Dallas, Texas, that I have worked with and seen in action fighting for victims' families to find the truth, will go over the ruling, the Court of Appeals, and in layman's term, tell us what happened. Lauren's family gives their full permission for any and all details to be shared in hope that the truth will come out. If you know anything at all, Call 1-888-599-0008 or email tips at sheilawysaki.com.